0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Off Camera is the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. Well, that's what I usually do, but this episode is a little different. I thought it might be kind of fun, since we've been doing this for a while, to switch things up a bit and give you all a peek behind the scenes here at Off Camera. I've enlisted my friend Chris Moore who you may know from the shows he's created like Project Greenlight in the Chair, or from movies he's produced like Goodwill Hunting, American Pie, and the Adjustment Bureau. Chris is going to sit in my chair and focus his curious brain on this show. Call it the off-camera show about off-camera, if you will. So I'm in the hot seat this time, and Chris has come up with some questions that pique his curiosity. So let's see what happens. Pull up a chair
1: and listen in. All right, Sam. Well, here I am over in this chair. H- How's it feel? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I took it over. I decided it was time for you guys to talk about off-camera. Well,
0: you know, I had I had you on the show in when? Like last year, year before? Yep, last year. And it was a great conversation. I've known you a long time. And yep. so,
1: you know, switching positions and doing this, I feel like it's kind of natural. Well, I will say that I was so honored and you know, happy to come here and talk to you because I do think what you do and what this off-camera project is, is really cool. And I think having been around almost just socially at the beginning when you were thinking about doing it, I found that it came from such an honest place of you're just so tired of these, you know, soundbite-specific interviews and there's people out there in the world that you'd really like to know a lot more about and nobody ever gives them a chance to ever... Talk in depth in that way. That's right. And so I was really impressed by that. I will say the other thing is that I have heard in social situations probably 2,000 ideas that people have, and they talk about it, and you hear about it, and you wonder, are they pitching me this idea? Is this something that they're just talking about to see if somebody else likes it? What's going to happen? And you actually did it. Like, we're here in a building. You're doing it with... I think this will be, what, episode 49, 50, something like that? Well, this will be, I think, 51. We've done 50 of these. 50, Yeah. Well, I just got to tell you, in this town, that's impressive. I mean that, honestly. Like, it's... People do not go out and do what they say they're going to do very often, and I think it's a quality that that needs to be celebrated. So I'm happy to be here and try to get you to talk about yourself. You never do, (laughs) which is a great skill. Well, I appreciate that. and
0: And... I, I think that's true. I think that um, I know a million people who say they're writers or say they're directors, and and it's I've I've been in that situation where I've had an idea that was sure I was it was going to go, and I talked about it, and then for some reason it fell through. Right. And then next time you see that person, you almost feel like, why did I even mention it? Right. Right. Yeah. And, but I, I think I think that is true in this town and in this industry. If you if you just do what you say you're going to do
1: or just follow through you're already ahead of 90% of the people 99 possibly yeah um, the uh, but i also think the the core idea was really interesting of giving people a chance to have a good interview to have a long interview you know i'm old so you know i can remember when playboy used to do it i don't know that anyone would open a playboy now due to the you know, the weirdness of that business but And you'd have these big pieces in New Yorker and other things where you could really get to know somebody. You know, now it just never happens and it feels like everybody's shilling for something. And that's the thing I also really like about off-camera is, you you know, in some ways you don't really time it, like the talk shows or Kimmel or those guys, to them trying to push something. They're there to just talk about themselves and they're there to talk about whatever their process, their actors, writers, musicians, whatever. And I, I just find it... Anyway, I, I think it's great. So I'm grateful for you to do it. I think everybody should pay attention and watch it. And I'm, I would love to know, back at that inspiration moment, were you, you know, angry about not being able to read stuff and learn <laughs> about people? Or was it more, this is a, a business opportunity that I could take advantage of? It felt much more personal when we first talked about it. Well, I'll tell you several
0: things. Number one, you say the non-agenda thing. Yep. I'm lucky enough that I started out Um, a long time ago taking pictures and that grew into taking pictures of very famous people for very big magazines and I've had a very very long and lucky career doing that so when I started the show I was able to get people on through those relationships right I've pretty much gone through my Rolodex at this point
1: (laughs) but but obvious by the fact that I'm the one sitting here (laughs) Letterman was busy. Yeah, exactly. Charlie Rose didn't pick up my call, yeah. and uh, Conan, <laughs>
0: <That's good. laughs> Conan actually egged my house. So here you are. <laughs> no, uh, but I think that I think that we discovered something in those early ones. I think it was Robert Downey, and he was the fifth one we ever did, and he came over to my little studio before we were here, and the first thing he said was, "I'm doing you such a big favor," like in a you know his <laughs> sarcastic joke, yeah. joking way, and he walked in like he was you know, right, but. The first thing he said when he sat down was, you know what, it's so great that we're not here selling soap and right. I can just talk. I never get to do that. And a light bulb went on for me that, like, you know, maybe maybe all these people that we think we know and we see on television all the time, we see them in movies, we see them on talk shows, maybe they're walking around feeling like, like – I never really get to talk like a craftsman or talk like uh, an artist or talk like a creative person. I'm I'm sort of always either selling something or or doing some agenda, right? Right. And now, as we go on, it is harder. We do have to time these things a little bit to projects because it's sort of how the business works. But when we get sort of that situation where it all lines up and someone comes in and they don't feel like they have an agenda, it is different. You know, and that's how it started for me. I think I think also being a photographer, I am always fighting for a really authentic portrait of somebody because when I see a really great portrait, I'm blown away. Like when I see, you know, uh, uh, say Richard Avedon's picture of Truman Capote or um, or, you know, Annie Leibovitz's portrait of of of. Keith Haring or something where it's it's like the inside and the outside match up and aesthetically it all it all gives you a window into who you think this person is and as a photographer who shoots people that should always be the goal I think is is to try to to really shed some some really insightful light on somebody but I started noticing 10 or 15 years into doing it that oftentimes I remember the experience of the day more than you know that was to me the true the true uh, experience was was getting to know that person and connecting with them right. and the photograph was secondary and the better i connected the better picture i made right. and and hopefully you know that's in the viewer's eye if they saw the picture and right. said i connect with that person but i started thinking well could a portrait be more than you know just a picture and i think that what off camera was essentially in my mind when it started was a really intricate, in-depth portrait of somebody.
1: That's a great way to put it. Yeah. You also have done some people who I didn't know a lot about who were fascinating. And I think that's also part of your, I don't know, the, the part of the success is how do you pick these people? Or, or what is it? It doesn't, like I said, because it's not solely based on someone's out promoting something, you're also not doing it daily. Right, you get a chance to sort of pick. Obviously, some of it is who will do it. Right, <laughs> can admit sure. that. Right, but but I think some of it is also you. You use the word craft sometimes, and it feels like a lot of the people you pick actually have a craft, whatever, and they believe in it and they really want to be good at it. But are there other insights or things about how somebody becomes a target for off camera?
0: Well, the first thing is just personal interest, and um, and if. You know, and, and my interests are so wide-ranging that if I target in on somebody and just say, God, I just love their work, then that, that person goes to the top of the list, you know? But an unexpected benefit of doing this has been that, yeah, we can't get everybody all the time, and sometimes we have to work on people for two years to get them in. Right. When they like the idea, you know, the eventuality is, yes, I'll, I'll do it, but then actually finding the time, and, you know, it takes a while. So... For instance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right. he was one of the first guys I ever told about the idea because we were just cooking it up and I went and photographed him for a magazine. And I told him, he said, ah, oh, it's great, I'll do it. And then two and a half years later, we finally got him in the chair. <laughs> but an unexpected benefit has been to be able to be offered somebody or have someone come on my radar right. and have it start to be a conversation around the office. I like, go, oh, can this person, what you think this would be a good person right. to do on the show, and then you get to start digging into their work. And I find that when I dig into someone's work, a lot of the times I'm completely surprised, like, how did I miss this person? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and the other factor is, can someone handle an hour of self-reflection and self-awareness? Because our best guests are the ones that are most self-aware. Yeah. And the ones who really have either struggled or examined their career in such ways or, or really want to grow as an artist throughout their career, right. those people are the most interesting because they're constantly challenging their perceptions or, or pushing up against what they think is the limit of... And I think a guy like Ethan Hawke is a great example. Um, he's one of our favorite interviews because he, he constantly, whenever he gets comfortable, he seems to try something else and often gets completely slammed for it. Like he wrote a book and then found out how much people don't like when you get out of your lane, and, yeah. and had to endure some terrible criticism. But in the end, he said, look, I'd rather have written the book, no matter what people say, than never try to write a book. Right. And to me, that's the kind of artist we want yeah. to hear, like curious, restless creatives that don't want to just rest on their laurels.
1: Well, one of the things I was thinking about when you were just saying that is that you also have made documentaries, Yes. and have, and in some ways, documentaries, there's a music one with Dylan and his music, there's others that you've been part of that it's also a little bit of a portraiture. Do you find in the this scenario, like in the different scenarios where you investigate people? right So, you know, you're doing a still portrait that has its limits. You talked about that a little bit. But in uh then you have the talk show where you're here and we're doing this conversation together. I'm sure that you've found its boundaries and, and lines having done 50 of them but you've also done these documentaries and I don't think a lot of people know that about you that you know you you get behind these projects and a lot of them even though you attach great people to them over time are driven by you and it feels like some of them come from this place of a similar of really trying to get to know people and really trying to share who these artists really are is that a fair
0: summary? Totally and, and I think that you know the documentary is the classic example of the lone wolf you know in filmmaking if you want to really sort of strike out on your own and and go into that dark place and documentary is the way to go because there's never any money and you're you're chasing a story that maybe only you know or you sense might be there and uh and you don't have you don't have, for good and for bad reasons, you don't have executive producers and you don't have people behind the scenes sort of uh, supporting you. Um, but I think documentaries are absolutely a portrait and uh, and I think that what the most fascinating documentaries to me are, are when I'm in a room I wouldn't normally get to be in. Right. And I get to see a process. And I, if you look at the films I have made, they are very much along these same lines of the creative process. And I think... If anything, that probably is indicative of my desire to be in this creative world of people making things and wanting to feel like I belong and wanting to feel like I, I, can, I can hold my own in those rooms. Right. You know. And, and music is such a big thing for me, and yet growing up, even playing in bands and everything, I don't think I ever really felt like I was as good or as, as worthy Right. of that kind of thing. And, uh, and and that you know, as you get older, you find out that's all in your head, you know, yeah. and that's for other people to judge. But I think through making documentaries and through doing a whole bunch of commercial work that was documentary-based and then doing this show, I do find out that I'm constantly seeking connections with creative people. And, I, you know, some of it is probably selfishly just trying to find some... Some uh calm or some or some reassurance that that uh i'm doing it right or i'm, I'm right. Uh, you, you know what I mean, and I think that documentary thing it's it's different though than this and i'm very i think a lot about terms like i don't like to call this an interview i don 't like to call it a talk show, although oh, it's both of those I'm sorry things. no <laughs> it, look it's both of those things yeah. right of yeah. course it is yeah. But we, around the office, we always try to use the word conversation. Right. I'm very sensitive of the idea that by doing off camera, I've become part of the media, because because I feel like off camera, if anything, has more in common with a documentary than it does with a variety-based talk show like At, a Letterman or a absolutely. Charlie Rose, even or something. And the goal with off camera originally was can we can we make something that's that's working on a different le- level? It's entertaining, but is it also is it making that connection to so someone watching it can feel the same way I feel when I'm talking right. to somebody. You know, and, and can I be inspired? Can I be educated? And if, you know, in a documentary you're pursuing a story. Right. Right? And, you, and it sort of becomes like you have to prove your story in your documentary. You have to take a point of view. Yeah. Off camera is interesting because you may walk in with a point of view but it can be totally changed in the right. course of an hour and there's no agenda. Right. You know? But I think it's, yeah, it's seeking out that portraiture and, that, and trying to get to understand what makes someone tick. We keep trying to think of taglines for the show because right. we feel like on the podcast we need a tagline. You know? And, and uh, the other day we came up with um, the show where we get to talk to creative, restless, iconic artists and find out what made them that way. Because yeah. that's really what I'm interested in is how did you go from right. some kid that I knew at school in sixth grade, right. you know, flopping around in the sandbox right. to this, you know, this, this maker of art that can change people's perceptions or enlighten them or open up their viewpoint or, or you know. That's what, that's what gets me all the time.
1: Well, so let's just go with that right now on Sam Jones. So you're in the playground and <laughs> six you're in sixth grade, right? And because I would say it's even metaphorically so classic and traditional that you were behind the camera whether documentary or photography right and now you're in front of it that's a psychological change in your own life so now you've obviously at some point 50 episodes ago or whenever that happened i'm going to you know it's time for me to get out there you're you're in the front of some of these documentaries not necessarily in them but you're the director and the piece and I know coming from a small town for me it's always hard to make that leap where you know what? I can handle it. I'm I'm gonna be fine up here. I'm gonna I, I now I see it. And so I would ask a two part question of sort of so way back, right, in your young time, you may not have been sixth grade or six years old, but at some point we realize creativity and other stuff is of interest to you and you're playing in bands, as you mentioned. I don't know if that's high school, college, post college, but can you walk us through a little bit of that experience and then land it sitting in this chair? Sure.
0: Um, and it's funny because I just to go backwards into that, I think I think doing documentaries and commercials, you're interviewing somebody. Yeah. But you're sitting behind the camera right. and you can ask them something five times until you get the answer you want. Right. With this show, I felt like I had to be on camera because there's an authenticity to it that wouldn't exist anywhere else. If you're watching a show and you, someone asks a question and the other person says, well, that's not right at all. Right. Uh, okay, the, the person watching it goes, oh, this is real. Yeah. But uh, growing up, I grew up in Fullerton, California, and Fullerton was the home of, I think, three very important things. Number one, the Fender Guitar Factory, which fed the music stores and pawn shops in the neighborhood, yeah. which created, number two, a big explosion of kids joining bands because instruments were super cheap. And number three, a ton of swimming pools because it's Southern California and it's warm. So there was a lot of skateboarding going on, skateboard parks, kids playing in bands, and then kids making things around that. Right. For instance, with us, we had a we had a skateboard scene, we had a ramp. And at one point we wanted to have a contest, so we had to make a flyer. Right. And then once we made the flyer and we had the contest, we wanted to like tell that story, so we made a little magazine. Right. And we gave it out to the kids, the other skater kids, like yeah. this is our scene. And by doing that kind of stuff, you don't realize it at the time, but you were, you're sort of putting your foot in every aspect of production, right? You're having an idea, you're sort of organizing a community, You're creating a marketing campaign around it, and then you're putting out a finished product of artwork, (laughs) and and it gives you this taste. And then and then you're also performing. You're either skating or you're playing music, and and so I I think that growing up in the time I did pre sort of video game obsession, and it was just this desire to make things to fill the time, you know, and to be creative. And and so I I just I was one of those kids that had way too much energy, and I always wanted to make things, and I always wanted to do things, and and get people together to do them you know like whether it was you know egging a house or or (laughs) grabbing onto cars as they went by on our skateboards or, or or more something more serious like like you know putting a band together and going out and playing a show i think that those things were the bedrock of 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 my personality because they satisfied me more than anything else and I think lucky for me, I also had parents that weren't completely interested in me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were interested in me to a certain extent. But in terms of how you're getting to school, how you're getting somewhere, you're, you have I'll a bike, you right. got friends with cars, you'll figure it out. You know, I don't think my parents ever came to one any of my skateboard contests or uh, any of my early band shows or anything. Right. And so it gave me, a, it gave me sort of an independent streak. Right. You know, I wasn't the kid that was like, you know, your, the parents are shuffling them around to the band practice and right. taking them to meet their friend who works at the marketing department of the record company yeah. or something. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there was an early independent streak in me of, oh, I, I can make whatever I want, and I usually feel best when I make something. And, and I think if I look at that kid, I'm not doing anything that's that different today almost to my detriment sometimes because I'm sure there's easier ways to earn money and easier ways to to get things made than by having to build your own studio right. and, you know, create your own television show. I'm sure I could have gone out right. and pitched something and made it easier on myself, but um, there's a huge satisfaction in doing it this way.
1: So now you're doing it. You're 50 episodes in. I believe you've been picked up for another season on, in the television aspect. The podcasts are growing. The a small magazine that goes along with it. Is it keep growing off-camera, Is it keep growing Sam Jones? Well, the
0: off-camera thing, I feel like, you know, you look at some of these people that have been doing it a long time, right? And, and not to compare myself, because I'm not, but people like Howard Stern, or right. Charlie Rose, or whoever, right. that, that have done this for a long time. We are so at the beginning of this, I mean, if you have a daily show, you do 50 shows in three months' time. Right. You know, it's taken us three years' time to do it. So I want a much larger sample size. I feel like everything I learn in this, in this thing is it moves at a slow pace because we don't do that many of these shows. I also feel like the world of podcasting is growing, and, and I'd like to see that audience grow along with us and um, you know, we make a print magazine as well, which you know, because you were on the cover <laughs> of one of them. And we feel like we're just scratching the surface on that, too. And and it's, it's kind of fun for me to have the anomaly of an actual print magazine right. in this day and age. But the TV show requires so much production and the podcast requires a certain amount of production that the magazine... I don't even think we've gone out and given it a chance and found distributors yet, and that's a big goal for us is, is to let more people stumble across this magazine and, and see the print aspect of it because another aspect of this show that people may not know if they, if they just watch it or listen to it as a podcast is that we do a photo shoot with everybody yeah. that we sit in the chair with, and that's so fun for me because it is that initial idea of a complete portrait. Right. And at the beginning we used to have this big debate like, do we do the photo shoot first or do we do the interview first? Right. And it, the reason it's a big debate is because there's and and neg- negatives about each thing. Like sometimes if I photograph someone first, they would get comfortable with me and I'd feel like I had a little history with them. Right. And then by the time we sit in the chair, we're pals. Yeah. But I also have this tendency to talk the whole time with somebody as I'm photographing them because i want to enhance the comfort level on the right. photo shoot and then we would sit down and it would feel fake right because
1: like, you already talked about
0: it yeah and, and i would i would find myself you know starting a question and go oh if i if i ask that in the photo shoot i can't ask it yeah. here and uh and so now you know we try to we pretty much sit down and talk first and then we go do the shoot but it's been such an incredible thing for me as a photographer and and a documentary maker to have the like to do both those things on the same day. Yeah. So uh, to get back to your original question, I I want more people to see this as this complete package. I like the idea that we only do each person once. Now, I may be shooting myself in the foot to say that, right. but I like the idea that we make one portrait and that's the standing one of off-camera for somebody. Yeah. And to me, it's interesting, even in an archival sense, to do two or 300 of these and then be able to look back
1: and go these things will live as, a, yeah. as an authentic portrait of these people. Yeah. Maybe you start over 10 years later. Right. You know, what's Robert Downey going to say 10 years from now when he, when he walks in? But, exactly. Um, yeah, now, if I'm still doing this in 10 years, <laughs> I, I'll be surprised. But, well, but it, maybe least three years, you've only done 50, and you say you want to do 300. <laughs> I can't quite do the math off my head, but I would say that's close. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny that the more I do of them, the more I realize how, how much there is to learn and how much there is to talk about and that you like it doesn't get old to me it's it's completely exciting to me but that being said I I've not stopped doing the other things I do at all and like next week I'm going to do a Vanity Fair job uh with Francis Ford Coppola and I'm looking forward to that so much to just do a pure photo shoot right you know for me I think I think I realized one thing about myself which is I'm never going to be the one thing guy right and it, and it confuses people. And it's funny, because when I did the Wilco documentary, I used to read, you know, in Vanity Fair magazine, you open it up, and, and in the beginning, they have the contributors page. Yeah. And you read about some writer, some editor, some photographer. Yeah. And I used to read the photographer blurbs, and they would say, oh, so-and-so is putting a book out and is having a show in Paris and uh, is going hang gliding in the Andes or something. And my bio would be like, He's just taking a bunch of pictures, you know? <laughs> and I wouldn't tell people I was also, like, making fake radio shows in my garage right. or, you know, drawing cartoons or something. Right. But I thought, okay, I need to go out and do something else. Like, this is, this is acceptable. And, and it, was, it sort of seemed like uh, part of the deal, that you had to, like, have something else right. about yourself that you were doing. Whereas at the time, like, photography just took up all my time. Right. So I went out and I made the Wilco documentary and, and that was a crazy chapter of my life. It, I put my own money into it and I, I, it was like my film school. I had, didn't know what I was doing at all. I learned on the fly and everything. And uh, as you know, the film was pretty well received yeah. and had a theatrical release. Yeah. And all of a sudden, uh, the phone stopped ringing for photography and, and I'd call my agent and I'd say, what's going on? I should be blowing up now. Like all these people know who I am. Right. And she said, everyone thinks you've quit photography. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we're gonna have to tell him you're still working <laughs> and that's when i sort of like one of those true things that i'm sure everyone else realized long before me but it, this thing hit me which was that people just expect you to stay in your lane yeah you know, and then now it's one of the main things I talk about on this show with actors. One of the first things I ask is, you know, what roadblocks do you run into when you try to go outside of the, the thing that you're known for? Right. I mean, I always cite the perfect example as Kramer. <laughs> like, there couldn't be a more perfect acting performance of someone embodying a role right. than Michael Richards being Kramer on yeah. Seinfeld. But thank God that thing went for like nine seasons, because yeah. he was so good at it that no one will let him out of that lane. But that happens to, I think, almost every actor, every director, and every musician on some level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So cut, fast forward to now, just had a conversation with my agent, and we looked at the schedule, and, and I realized you know I had to turn down a few jobs this year because of off-camera, and I, I did less photography, which is fine, but I asked my agent about it, she goes, yeah, people think you're just doing off-camera and you're not doing other things. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it, at a certain point, you go, okay, well, maybe the world's right. Maybe you can't do everything. Right. And, and that's my big struggle now. At the age I am and where I am, I've got kids in school. I've got um, a really busy life. And, and focusing on things and, and making them great,
1: it, it's tougher when you spread yourself into more things. So that's, that's my struggle right now. I, I really enjoy when you ask that question in the interviews on Off Camera about the changing lanes or doing other stuff. And you're right, Ethan Hawke was a great, interview about that um one thing that i'll say is there's there's two types of changing lanes for performers and stuff there's genre stuff like you're a comedian and then you want to do a drama you know we had an experience matt damon and ben and i with goodwill hunting where robin williams comes in he's a big comedian and he you know wins an academy award for doing a arguably a dramatic part right right and he was so grateful and amazed by that experience that he could actually go out and, and sort of flex that muscle and i But what I would say as a producer, we look at people as creative versus business right, and the lanes are probably bigger it's like the 405 going past you right, right. there's one over here and so like when you know another you know when ben affleck says i'm gonna go direct a movie i said yeah of course you know you you wrote a movie you star you're an actor well now you can go direct it. it's all creative and i love listener interviews where people say no they're totally tight like kramer trying to do something else yeah. is, that's crazy but what i would also say is it's even a bigger leap when you decide to go to the business side when you decide you're going to Fund it yourself, you decide you're going to produce it and figure out how to make money from the project that you're making and I would say an off camera you you made that choice you, right. you, you said to yourself and you said in the Wilco documentary, you spent a little bit you know you, you spent some of your own money, but again, that was a creative endeavor that you wanted to go do and I'm sure at some point the band said yes, and you said, okay let's go figure out how to do it and you you did it and made it a reality, but it wasn't an ongoing i 'm going to start a business that I have to balance the budget and i have to figure out how it's going to work and i would say that for me when i hear the changing lanes things that's always a big one because it's a natural thing when you become talented and you have some success that you also then have projects you care about that you want to get off the ground which requires a business side of your brain whereas again me being the totally you know non-intellectual producer to me the creative side of your brain can be all creative, like writer, director, musician. You know, I, I, I'm always amazed when an actor sits down at the piano and can play the shit out of a thing, or yeah. you know, starts singing. And you see it sometimes with guys like Will Ferrell and other people, like he's a comedian, and then all of a sudden he can do other stuff. You know, Hugh Jackman. I mean, he's out there doing a giant sing dance right. song, and he's also Wolverine, right? <laughs> but somehow in my mind, right, that still is a lane. It may not be the same size lane that your actors and your but, but to then jump over completely the hill and say, holy shit, now I'm going to go over here and become the business guy. And, and I would say that I've been very impressed, having been more on that side, that you as a producer, you and your partner as business people have made this an ongoing business. You've figured out the economics. You, you've taken ownership. You're using multiple distribution platforms right now. You're making that decision about how we distribute it. You know, it's not DirecTV. It's right. not your podcast people. It's not some big, you know, magazine publisher. It's you guys. How has that been for you, sort of, you know, flipping to that other side and sort of really being the quote-unquote businessman of this creative endeavor?
0: You know, God, that is a, it's such a
1: great way
0: to describe, like, that big lane. And, and I think the business thing for me comes out of the need— to get it done, like to see, to see something so clearly. I mean, I think when you're a true creative, you see something really clearly. And once, like that's the hardest part to be creative, right, is the idea. Once you get the idea and it comes into shape in your mind and you can pre-visualize it, then it's just a problem to solve. Some people say, okay, I got this great idea. Here's the, my script, I wrote it. And then they go out and they find a problem solver studio who can just give them the money and do it, right? Yeah. As a photographer, it's, once you see it in your head, it's telling your crew and everything how to, how to place things and the light and all this stuff so that the thing you see in your head becomes, it's that problem-solving thing. But I think, I think for me, with, with this show and with the documentaries to some extent, I don't want to wait for someone else to, to see the idea or validate the idea. And unlike a picture where you can go take it and then you can go see, and then the person goes see, and you're seeing the same thing. Pitching an idea is very different, because you can pitch an idea, and you can pitch it to three people in the room, and each each one will have a different idea of what that looks like. Right. So with off-camera, I think I want it to look a certain way, and I want it to be just just like the thing in my head. And I knew if I went out and started pitching it, no one was going to do the black and white thing. Right. We haven't even talked about that, but like no one was going to pay for the black and white thing. And... I just thought, okay, I'll just make it, and then we'll figure out the other stuff. And that becomes the necessity. Like, first you make it, and then you figure it out. And so it's been a huge education to, to have to sort of set up the business structure of things. And I did, I brought on a business partner who, funny enough, is someone who uh, was sort of by default the business partner, because when my kids got into uh, preschool, and we started meeting all these new parents. I think preschool is the time when all of a sudden you get a bunch of new friends. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and yeah. and then it happens again in school, and that's maybe your last time as adults when you make new friends in mass, right? Yeah. So all the moms were going out and doing like these crafting projects, or they'd go out and have you know wine night or whatever. And and the dads weren't. And a couple of the moms were like, "You need to get the dads together," you know. <laughs> and then someone put together a dads' night, and it was a bowling night. It's like. <laughs> can we just all say the word man cave for an hour while we're bowling and make the cliche complete, you know, while drinking, like, Michelob or something? Right, exactly. It was uh, – and no one really likes to bowl. Right. But this was what was organized. Right. The, the guys will like a bowling night. So a couple of guys at the school and me put together a basketball league. And, you know, it started out with, like, 17 dads, and they all went and, you know – two Achilles popped within the first week and a hamstring <laughs> went and, and uh, you know it weeded down to the, uh, to the guys that actually could play a little basketball but it also started out as a social thing where you'd play the basketball and then you'd go to the bar and everyone would order food and drink and talk and get to know each other and after about two months of that the wives started resenting the whole idea that their husbands <laughs> were going out and getting drunk on a Tuesday night <laughs> and uh, the basketball stayed, but the, the, all, the guys dinner. started dropping off. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it just ended up myself and Crawford, my business partner. And we'd be the only ones after basketball. That had, we have really great wives. And they were like, we don't care. Go, yeah. go socialize. So we'd end up at the bar. Yeah. And that was when I was starting off camera. And I'm a big talker, so I would just tell Crawford about the show. And eventually he just said, look, I want to be a part of this thing. And so it wasn't like... I went out intentionally to find a business partner, right. but I found someone who was incredibly just uh, nuanced at his ability to sort of listen and, and sort of figure out the structure of things. Who also has a business background, which I don't, and you know decided to take on this thing as a labor of love. And so w- he's been a giant help to it, but um, but also I think that that we got lucky on a few things, which. Every story, yeah, that's some luck. every story has some luck, and the big luck for us was that Directv saw what we were doing and didn't ask us to change it. They just thought it was cool, and so we made a licensing deal with them uh, rather than a producing deal, so that we basically get to make a finished show and give it to them, which is unprecedented in television, yeah. I think, in a lot of ways. And the most beautiful thing about that is that. They honor not the letter of the contract, but also the spirit. They've never been here. Like, they are so cool. They've never <laughs> showed up here. And that part is amazing. The only times that I get together with them is socially or over a meeting down at the DirecTV building, but they've never been here. And and they pretty much let us do what we want. And And for me, that's the biggest victory of this show is that it went from an idea to an actual thing without changing that much in the process. And, I, and that, when I stop and think about it, that's the thing that uh, that I can't believe, you know? Yeah. But yeah, the business side of things, learning about podcasting, it's a constant moving target to try to figure out how do we grow that audience and how do we get people to find out about us? And, um, and that's been an education that's been really fun. Um, I've become a big podcast fan. I mean, I was always an NPR guy, but since doing this, it's really piqued my interest to go listen to a bunch of things
1: I normally wouldn't. Have you at least enjoyed the fact that you've gotten to be able to protect it? Are you at this point where you find, like, look, I went to that other side, I took a certain amount of risk, I, I created this business scenario, and it's actually really delivered for me? Are you enjoying sort of the fact that it's still going on and you still have this good relationship with DirecTV and you still are creating these different pieces, podcasts, magazines, whatever? Completely.
0: I mean, that's that's the thing that, like, you know, we can all get in our own ruts and say, oh, this isn't working or this is a struggle and why aren't we here? But but at the end of the day, I do know that whether this thing passes or fails eventually, whether it, you know, gets more successful or whatever, it's, it won't be because I took someone else's advice. Like, I think that it would be horrible to have listened to a bunch of advice from somebody and then have the show fail. And then you always wonder, did it fail because I wasn't good enough at it? Or did it fail because I didn't trust my gut enough and didn't do things the way I thought? And, and I think that's a question that, I mean, guy, you look at any film director that has a big, you know, sort of body of work. No one gets out unscathed. Right. You know, there's no yeah. one that, that sits at the top of the Rotten Tomato meter with every, right. With every, every movie, movie, right? Yeah. And I would, I would guess, I would bet a lot of money that if you talk to those directors on some of their bigger failures, you would find a lot of stories where they maybe didn't trust their gut. Or maybe they got talked into a casting decision that didn't seem right. Or the studio brought in someone to rewrite and when the rewrite came back, everyone loved it but them so they decided, well, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this one. Right. And maybe they were, but they'll never know for sure. Right. And we don't, as creative people that do big collaborative endeavors, we don't get the opportunity very often to sort of like see our vision through. Right. And this show is small enough that that gets to happen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like if you're a painter. You're not, getting, you're not getting a room full of people in Hollywood to tell you that that shade of green is wrong right. or whatever. And I think painters live or die by you know, whether or not they're talented and whether or not they you – know, all those other factors. But it's not because someone else is advising them. Yeah. And so at, you know, when all this is done and I can look back and say you know, it was the success it was or it re- reached whatever level – it will be, for better or for worse, based on our own, our own merits, right. you know? And that, that's something I don't think that I, I will ever take for granted. And the fact that we get to broadcast it and people get to see it, that's amazing to me.
1: Two things come out of that answer that, I, and I'm glad you get to enjoy it. I asked the question partly because I'm old and I hate it when people don't stop because the business moves so fast, there's so many things happening that a lot of times you don't stop even for a day. Just say, you know, this is pretty cool. Like like this, we we get to do this, and I accomplish this, and you get a moment to it. So I'm glad you're enjoying it and keeping your perspective. The two other questions that popped out at me from that answer, um, one was you talked about if we fail, right? So some people argue you're at episode 51, you've done it a few years, you've done whatever. It's already clear you didn't fail, right? But one of the questions I would have was, well, then how are you defining success? Right. Well, look, we're in an age now where, you know,
0: as independent artists, whether you're a filmmaker or a musician or a photographer or a director, there doesn't seem to be the same safety pool of income in the entire entertainment business. Right. And you see this all the time where People can have one year where their career blows up in this sort of social media internet world, yeah. and then that's it. And and for me, I guess I define success and failure by, can I keep doing what I'm doing at a level that I can support my family, right. and and have that career? I guess for me, if if you know this show was canceled tomorrow, how do I get to keep doing it? Damn. How do I keep, or how do I get to do the next thing that allows me? To be in the room, to have these amazing conversations, or to be able to photograph these people, or to make films about them, or whatever it is, how do I keep the steps going? So I think I define success and failure by that, by, by really wanting to make things that, that hold my interest and excite me without having to feel like I'm just a gun for hire.
1: But I think that what, what's really encouraging, though, is, is that definition of the balance, of doing it at a level where you can have a good life you can pay for your kids to go to school and get the creative satisfaction and i would agree that's the right definition of success it's not to have 200 million dollars in the bank or to be the number one on the star meter at whatever it's i want to keep doing what i'm really interested in but also be able to have a life the second question having it be portraits or interviews or whatever you've you've crossed another lane if if in some way this metaphor can have a three-lane highway, but the which is you've you've got There's <laughs> a metro lane, to, down yeah, in the exactly. You're in the the carpool lane is <laughs> uh, is you've come a little bit to the media side, and 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 you've come to and when I say media, I mean like the PR reporters, where you know that can be because you're friends with these people and you shoot these people and you do other stuff, and then if you're all of a sudden. On the person on the outside who 's commenting or critiquing out having sat in that chair and been interviewed i don 't think you do that. I think you 're very conscious of you 're letting me talk and you 're asking me questions, but it 's not you know tell me about your divorce or whatever right. it's, you know this but I, I, I did a good marriage i do it 's not my <laughs> divorce, um, but what I mean is, have you also thought about sort of in doing portraits, and I like that analogy we've come up with as a mess, as, as an umbrella for some of all of some of this work, is do you, I feel portraits is probably the safest reporter, media, PR role that you can be in. Right. Um, but do you think about that, the, the switching sides to sort of becoming? You know, I do and I don't
0: because I feel like, first off, my history is um, I started out full media, because I was a photojournalist for the Associated Press. So when I was 21 years old, gosh, I was at Hank Gathers' funeral, who was a basketball star for yeah. La Marymount, who died remember. on the court. And I'm there, and I have to get like a picture of his mother, and I'm sure that I'm the last person she wants to see. And right. that's actually what made me quit. In fact, that very day, I think, was a big contributor of me not wanting to be a part of that. But I, I think that you know, b- even even when you're a photographer for Vanity Fair magazine, there are expectations on both sides. Right. The magazine wants a certain kind of picture. The person who comes in, the actor, hopes they're portrayed in a certain way. Right. And it's a negotiation. And it's a conversation. And I, I just hope that off camera and just my own personal agenda can erase those lines a little bit. Because I plan on directing more films and doing more things where i'm the talent as Uh, even more so than i may be seen in in this off-camera thing but you know we've talked about this i think that i am in this kind of interesting position because i do feel like i do feel like i have one foot in each side and i can talk to these people i can talk to judd apatow about directing and i can have a really expert quote-unquote conversation about directing yeah but Hopefully I have enough understanding also on the other side of it that someone who's, who's watching can feel a part of the conversation yeah. because I've, I'm on that other side too. But, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And, I, and sometimes I wonder um, if, if there's some subtle shift that occurs in, in someone's mind if they're sitting down to have a conversation with right. me. And the way I kind of calm myself down about that anxiety, because it is a little bit, you know... Uh, um, is, is I just say that anyone who bothers to get to know me is going to understand that I'm gonna try different things right. and, and whatever I do next, it's gonna be something I haven't done before. So I, I, I sort of figure it's the same principle of if I, if I wanna make something cool, I'm probably gonna to have to figure out how to do it on my own anyway. Yeah. And, and I'll hopefully change people's perceptions along the way if they had any to begin with. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, Uh, You're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career, and even in the last eight or nine months, it's not an easy time to feel great about things. And BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues, including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything, in other words, if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like I have been, there are times when you just need help. You need to sort things out. And I've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy. When I first went to therapy, you know it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me and if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations it was a whole new world and it was a world that i didn't know anything about and so You know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about. And and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course, Everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time Funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath. And, well, it's a lot different now, and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home it's just a great system. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option and the listeners of Off Camera get 10% off their first month with the discount code camera. Go to betterhelp.com that's better h e l p.com/camera and you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need. Now back to the show.
1: Uh, one of the things we've discussed off-off-camera, um, but we also talked a little bit when I was in that chair, uh, in in on-camera and off-camera, was... No one knows what we're talking the, about in this position. I think they'll get it. <laughs> I think we can make a funny game out of it. If you understood what they were talking about... Drink. win $50. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Drink. <laughs> It'll be a drinking game. How many times did Chris or Sam say off camera <laughs> um, the, uh, no, but what I was talking about it, it was marketing. So yeah. I, I, I shared in my interview that my big frustration with the entertainment business right now as a whole was that, in all honesty, we're making too much stuff. And we're not self-editing each other, and we're not, the business isn't editing itself. It's exploding because all these people want original content. I mean, there was a FX, the television network, published yesterday a study that 429, I think it was 429 or maybe 409, I'm not remembering exactly, but something over 400 original scripted television shows were released in 2015. Now, there there isn't a chance on earth a human could possibly even be aware that all 400 got made, let alone make an educated decision on which ones they wanted to watch or find. And that's just one genre. There's reality shows, there's movies, there's documentaries. And, and that, so I, I think that we're oversaturating it. I think when you make something good that's having a life like off camera, right, you struggle. I know I do when I make a movie or I work on something where I'm just like, God, I made something good. It felt like when we made Goodwill Hunting or I made American Pie, it was a shitload easier to get people to know it was happening, right? Like, just to be like, hey, you might like this, right? Today, I feel like if I made either of those two movies, 50-50 shot, anyone ever heard of them, Right? you know? Right. And it freaks me out. So you're starting something new in, a, in an interview-type format, and you're, you're creating this brand, and you're doing this thing. And you've got a podcast, and you have the hard magazine, as you described. What efforts and how are you working? Because as you said, I hope it gets bigger and I hope it does other stuff. And you admitted early in one of your answers, it's hard. You want people to figure it out. Or some people walk in here, never heard of it, right? To me, that's the funniest thing is that PR people are sending people into places that they've never heard of (laughs) to do interviews just because they have no idea of where the eyeballs are, right? So it's all of that. But have you guys spent time and you yourself thinking about and, and looking at how are we going to get people to find us? Because here's the one thing I would say, and this is a long way of asking. This is your risk of getting me to come be in this chair. Is I'll talk too much, but the, but it's what, working out what, so far. What, it's what, good. I'll, what I'll say is that you you, you said earlier that there's this. Uh, you know, sort of group of, of people who will like it and who will go into it and then they'll learn about it slowly and and your definition of success and people trusting you when we were talking about the media thing. What immediately detracts me from something in the media side or whatever is when I realize the person's sole goal is to get... More eyeballs no matter what, or to make more money no matter what, or to go out and just shill for whatever it is they're doing no matter what. And I think what I like about Off Camera, and also the guests you bring, is that there is at some level this self imposed discipline of, look, I'm making something cool. I am cool theoretically. I'm doing something cool. This project I'm trying to talk to you about. I'm going to do either way, and as Ethan Hawke said, and I may get destroyed for it or people may be angry because I switched lanes. And I would say that once you hit that line of, of crossing it to where I'm just trying to get more eyeballs or I'm trying to do the fancy thing to get lots of people on BuzzFeed or I'm trying to do whatever you lose some of that. But that, that seems to be the way marketing is working today. If I can just get more likes, if I can just go out and get more followers, and you could, you know, every time you have a famous person, say, okay, give me one piece of gossip so that I can make that my short little piece that I put out on Twitter. Everybody's like, holy shit, so-and-so said whatever, and that's your trade. And you don't, at least in the ones I've read and listened to and the one you do, do with me, not that I have any gossip, but I, but my point is, that's where I think there's a weird line. And you guys hold the line very strongly. Um, but in the marketing question of sort of, have you thought of going over that line or the TMZ line? It's, the-
0: it's so funny. You know, Crawford, being the business partner that he is, right. has, has, you know, his jaw sometimes hits the floor when we get offered somebody and I say, no, I don't. But I really have to think, can I have a good conversation with that person? And... Uh, and can I do I have a genuine interest and sometimes it's a challenge to go find out if I do and other times it's just like it's not true to me um, so on the guest standpoint yeah we hold the line there right. I mean the thing that all shows like this want is that no matter who's on you tune in because you know you're gonna hear something interesting yeah. and uh, whenever I'm feeling weird about that like how do I market this we don't have any advertising budget we're not spending money we're not running ads I go if I just stick at this long enough and I work really hard at it to get better at the, these conversations, it will eventually find its audience and it will be better because of it and it will have stronger a stronger core because of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's a struggle because we're incredibly fortunate. We're on television. We get seen by a lot of people. We're in 30 million homes on TV. We have a lot of podcast listeners.
1: And we just hope that if someone really likes it. they tell people about it. I'm sort of getting to the end of what I had to talk about. There's one more thing that I just want to hit is, one of the things we've talked about, one of the sort of buzzwords, and you take very little credit for this, so I'm gonna ask it because you don't, I believe that the future, both for this marketing reason, but also because of this, we just have too much content out there, is going to be some level of curation that all of us are gonna at some point trust some other person who is, you know, the sort of geek of some subject that you're interested in. I would argue that you, and you don't call yourself a curator, you don't say, I'm curating, but I think the f- the function you're serving of questions you're asking, of the people you're choosing and off-camera to talk about even in your documentaries, and I'd love to hear, you know, sort of, A, whether you accept that analogy that you're being a curator, but also why you may not want people to think of you that way or why you, you do want people to think of you that way? And could you give us a little bit of what are those things that make someone interesting for you in the role of a curator?
0: Well, it's, that's interesting because one of the things we're still trying to solve and, the, and trying to figure out a way to take advantage of is that there is a tremendous amount of information that I gather before I sit down with somebody. Right, just anecdotally even, if I watch a YouTube video about someone I'm about to interview and they mention something offhand and then I say, I haven't heard of that and then I go check it out because it may lead to a question that they haven't heard a thousand times. Right. It's almost like I want either a companion piece or a second podcast or something to right. just go down these avenues that are a little more, um, I guess on the surface, curatorial, but they're really just taking your curiosity and following it further down. Right. You know, it's, it's almost like the idea of a living... Um, of a living document and and uh, you know in the future, I, I would hope that maybe we could even turn the magazine into something where anything that was mentioned, you could just touch it and have more more yeah. of an expanded view. like I think that there is a value to that, I think when you when you've spent your life reading and listening to music and watching movies and and discovering uh, weird hobbies and and uh traveling and eating certain kinds of food that you want to share that stuff because because you want to have that experience with somebody you want to see someone's eyes light up after you give them a book and they come back to you a week later right you know that's that's to me the best part about sharing anything in life is that is that feeling that oh we both understand something right you know and i and I think this particular show puts me in a position where people do sort of trust me in some ways. i agree yeah. and and, and I don't know, that's, it's a fun thing to figure out, I guess. As funny as this is, being here three years and doing this for a relatively long time, I feel like we're so much at the beginning and the show's gonna get so much better the more I do it and the more I feel like we don't have to prove ourselves anymore, right. then we don't have to always reach out for the guest that is the biggest, you know, I love the fact that we can mix in people that people haven't heard of. I agree. Um, and I wanna do that more.
1: I had one last question, just your classic interview thing. So you're getting to do an interview, you're talking about it, somebody might see it. Are there two, three guests that you would love to have on the show that you haven't been able to get on the show? There are. There are definitely. You know, from my
0: personal life, I would love to have someone like Paul Westerberg on, who's a famous sort of musical recluse, but I think he's a great underrated songwriter. That I think would be fascinating to have a conversation with. He was the singer of the Replacements, yeah. And they were a band that I really liked growing up. Um, So having having him on would be great. I've had some of my heroes on. I had Stacy Peralta, the skateboarder, on, who I used to actually pretend to be when I was a young (laughs) skater. So that that was that was something interesting. You know, I would love to have some of my favorite authors on that that maybe no one would. Care about, but to have Jim Harrison on could be just a disaster because, you know, these these writers. I think I love them because they are giant messes of people. (laughs) But but someone like that would be fantastic. And um, I would love to talk to an athlete um, who I think is as much of an artist as people we think of as an artist, like Clayton Kershaw, the pitcher for the Dodgers, that I think, you know, to to get in the mind that far of a of a major league batter and be able to strike him out in such a silly way and throw a curveball that that if it was simply an athletic event then people could duplicate it right. but I think it has to be creative qualities yeah. to it and to be able to talk to an athlete like like just as a craftsman or an artist
1: that's exciting to me see that's a very diverse group and I think that's part of as hopefully this interview helps people learn to trust you more and want to come back to the show because you're on it, not just because whoever the guest is. Right. Learning more about you, I think, you know, is is interesting. Well, I, listen,
0: I appreciate you doing this for me because um, it's, if there's anyone that ever was going to do this, it's you because I feel like since the beginning, I, I brought this show idea to you. I talked it through with you. I know that you've been in a room a thousand times with networks and pitching things and and uh, you've been somewhat of a mentor to me. Well, uh, that's strong.
1: But no, it, well, thank you've you. you've
0: definitely been a sounding board, and, and I'm happy to do it, and a friend, and, and uh, you know, I am a, a bit uncomfortable talking this much about myself, and so well, I think to do you it with did a friend, it. I think you did it pretty well. Thank you. Very much. Hey folks, that's our show for this time. A big thank you to Chris Moore for playing the role of me and for coming up with all those great topics. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for supporting the show and spreading the word about Off Camera. We do not have an advertising or marketing department, so we depend on word of mouth from you. If you love what we're doing here, please don't keep it a secret. Tell your friends and enemies about Off Camera so we can keep bringing you these conversations. And since we are at a bit of a break here, I want to take a moment and give credit to the off-camera staff. It takes a lot of effort to put out a podcast, a television show, and a magazine, and I couldn't do it without these fine people. Crawford Shippy, our producer and COO, who keeps this whole thing afloat. Nathan Shields, who is a lot more than just the assistant to the traveling secretary. He also produces and edits and handles most of our post-production. Amy Jones, our researcher and writer, who makes us keep our literary standards high and our dictionaries handy. And Tyler Rumpf, the new father who operates five cameras. Kovan Sati and Linda Lichter, who deal with all the legal mumbo-jumbo. Susanna Kalb, who makes the operation run here in the office. And our newest member of the team, Michaela Galvin, who, although new, I am confident will be kicking ass and taking names with all graphics and layout work. And there's Kara Johnson, who turns the spoken word to the written word faster than the speeding bullet. There's Justin Kennedy, who knows more about clothes than any man should, and makes everyone look good. And Kristen Heitkotter, our resident beautifier. Then there's Matt Davidson, who we love for his set expertise. And Albert Fu, Brian Carter, Brian Elioff, and Rob Epifano, for excellence in photography assisting. And, last but definitely not least, Bart Peters, Chris Long, and Heather Davis at DirecTV who make us legitimate, 4K, and nationwide. Thanks for supporting the show. I'll see you soon off-camera.